Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Encore. I'm your host, Tony Branchetti. Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Gloriosi, music of the Paschal Tritium by renowned composer Tony Alonzo. The first comprehensive resource of its kind, Gloriosi contains a treasure trove of ritual music that bridges linguistic, cultural, and musical differences for the liturgies of Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and the Easter Vigil. Weaving together familiar tunes and ancient chants with newly composed pieces, Tony Alonzo has meticulously crafted the music of Gloriosi to inspire the participation of of a diverse assembly during these celebrations at the heart of the liturgical year. For more information and to order, visit www.giamusic.com. And with that, I'm extremely excited to welcome on today's guest. Without him, there would be no encore, and GIA would certainly not be the same leader in the music publishing and distribution world that it is today. Please welcome on GIA's retired vice president and senior editor emeritus, Robert Battistini. Bob, can't thank you enough for taking the time today. How are you? I'm just fine, Tony, and thank you very much for uh, inviting me to uh, participate in this. And and while we've got the public handy, I want to congratulate you on your new child. Oh, thank you so much, Bob. I appreciate it. And it's uh, you know, an honor to have you on for sure. This is this is great. Look, was really looking forward to it. So I guess we'll we'll jump right into it. Start with the interview here. I guess the first question I have for you, just kind of you know, a basic kind of get to know you better question for our listeners. So can you just tell us a little bit about your life growing up? Well, I attended a Catholic school in my parish, and I began taking piano lessons from one of the sisters in third grade. I guess I progressed pretty well, and by fifth grade, was occasionally accompanying my class during classroom music. By that time, I was also a chorister in the boy choir. In eighth grade, I began organ study, and in my freshman year of high school, believe it or not, I became the parish organist. Three years later, the choir director, and I held that position for the next 10 years. I took on my next parish position in 1965, and in 1967, I went to work for GIA. Throughout my GIA years, I also held a parish music director position, and to this day, I am still the co-director of the choir in my parish. Hey, excellent. So you were a senior in high school when you uh, were the, the choir director at, in your first parish. Freshman in high school. Freshman in high school. Wow, that is incredible. That really had to be, you know, kind of intimidating for, you know, a younger kid like that, right? Well, I was a freshman in high school in September, only about two weeks into the school year, <laughs> when the principal came into the classroom and said, can I talk to Robert Battistini? And of course, <laughs> freaked out. I mean, I said, what did I do? He said, Sister Bitella from St. Morris is on the phone and she needs to talk to you. So her message was that our organist, Mr. Hutton, an elderly man, was ill. Could I possibly play any of the masses the next morning? That went on for 10 years. (laughs) Wow, that is that is awesome. When did you first know that you wanted to pursue a career in music? You know, did you have any musical influences early on that kind of steered you toward that career path? Well, my mother, my mother played the piano, not really well, but she played the piano. And my two, my older brother and sister both took piano lessons and didn't go very far with it. So my elder brother, when I was uh, eight years old, he, you know, he was 12 years older than me. He said to my mother, aren't you going to make Bobby take piano lessons like you made us? (laughs) Well, I was the one that that took, but I think I knew by the time I reached eighth grade and 
and the sisters who taught my parish school were a great influence. But I knew by then pretty much that music was going to be my career. Uh, these nuns were from the School Sisters of St. Francis, a Milwaukee-based order, which was and still is pretty well known for their focus on church music. In fact, the, the, what used to be the St. Joseph Rensselaer program liturgical, uh, graduate program liturgical music is now at their college in Milwaukee, where Steve Chenko is the, uh, is the uh, in charge of that program. Okay, excellent. I'm really excited to ask you this next question. I remember when I first started at GI back in 2016, uh, you were in for a visit working a couple days and I was uh, sitting at the, at the lunch table with you and you kind of told us all kind of the history lesson of GI, you know, just the story of how it began. And I just remember being, you know, that really caught my attention. I was really interested by it. And it, you know, just so turns out, this is, you know, a perfect kind of platform to ask you that question and kind of you tell, you know, a broader audience kind of the history of GIA. So um, can you tell us about how you first met Ed Harris and, you know, how you began, of course, your long and fruitful tenure at GIA? When, when, when we first talked, I said I'd give you the short answer. <laughs> you, no, give me the long answer. Yes, sir. The Gregorian Institute of America was founded in 1941 by Clifford Bennett, who was the organist and choir master at Sacred Heart Church in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. uh, it was patterned after the Gregorian Institute of Paris, and as the term institute suggests, the initial effort was educational. GIA developed the Catholic Choir Master's Chorus Correspondence Course, CCCC, through which Musicians could study Gregorian chant, psalmody, liturgy, and so on. And due to its affiliation with a Catholic college, one could eventually obtain a bachelor's degree through the CCCC. Wired mm -hmm. attending a two-week summer session for each year of study, which involved in-person music making, including choral singing. The year after it was founded, GIA moved to Toledo, Ohio. About 1950, the Institute began music publishing. At the beginning, mainly choral music for use at the summer sessions, but that gradually grew into a complete line of published music for the Catholic Church. In the 1960s, Vatican II came along mm -hmm. and it changed the way the church approached liturgy and liturgical music. Bennett struggled to adapt, but he was getting older and felt the need to make some changes. For, for one, he approached Harold Fisher of Chicago, where Ed Harris was one of the managers. And he arranged for them to handle all GIA's wholesale distribution. Eventually, in conversation with a Chicago priest, whom I knew well, Bennett said that he was thinking about looking for a young church musician to take over the position of director of the Gregorian Institute. What a title. The priest said, I know a guy, and he arranged a meeting between Bennett and me. We talked for a number of hours, and it ended with him being interested in me and be, me being interested in the position, but not sure I wanted to pick up my young family and move to Toledo. Right. So we left with you know everything on the table. A few months later, I received a lovely letter from Bennett saying, thank you for considering us but we decided to move in another direction. That other direction was his decision to sell the company. Because of the Carl Fisher connection, he called Ed Harris and said, 
Ed, I want to sell the Gregorian Institute, and I think you should buy it. Ed was interested, but responded that he certainly knew the music business, but did not know much specifically about church music. Bennett replied, I know a guy. <laughs> At some point in 1967, I received, I received a call that began, I can still hear it. Hi, my name is Ed Harris, and I'm buying the Gregorian Institute, and I wonder if you would be interested in coming to work for me. We had lunch a few days later, and the rest is history. In August of 67, Ed and I attended a GIA Summer Institute in Rochester, New York, as the beginning of our learning process. We, by the way, continued to conduct those summer sessions, usually three on the East Coast, West Coast, and Midwest, until NPM was formed in about 1975, at which point we handed off that educational aspect of GIA to NPM. In October of 67, we both spent Monday through Friday in Toledo for about four weeks. We flew in on Monday, flew out on Friday. I was really getting to feel like that hotel in Toledo was my home. Uh, and this was where we learned the nuts and bolts of the business. We found a rather humble building on Chicago's south side, and on November 1st, the deal was closed and the moving trucks lined up. Bennett's last words to Ed when they closed the deal were, good luck but I think I've tried everything. Wow. That is an incredible story. And, and I actually didn't know the whole Toledo part of that story as well. That's so that's I'm um, glad I asked that question for sure. Early on, they had to be, as you mentioned, you know, you and Ed spent a lot of time learning the business, you know, learning the ins and outs. So what were your visions for building, you know, the company up kind of from the ground floor? You know, it had to be a challenge is there wasn't really a, a roadmap people have done this before, you know, an example to go off of as GI was, you know, a trailblazer in the sacred music industry. Well, well, the, before Vatican II, the Gregorian Institute of America certainly was indeed a trailblazer. But as I suggested, the founder, Clifford Bennett, did not navigate well into the post-Vatican II world. And being of retirement age, he decided to sell. So we had a lot to learn, but luckily our instincts served us well and we had very few pitfalls and setbacks. But then, and throughout all my years at GIA, including to a lesser degree still to this day, I have continued to be a parish musician. Through all my years at GIA, I also held a position as music director in a local church, and that played a huge role in informing me what I did at GIA. I would always ask the question, will it work in my church? And if it did, it was good. And if it wouldn't, then why try to try, try to impose it on anyone else? Absolutely. And understood this, and he made, he made the necessary adjustments to allow me to do the work at GIA while being more or less a full-time parish musician. Right. Right. And that's, you know, very important part of, you know, what we do at GIA. So you, you know, having your finger on the pulse, you were able to be all more successful because of that, for sure. That informed most of what I did. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, next question I got for you are, what are some resources from GIA that you guys published during your tenure that you feel that you are, you know, particularly proud of? Maybe, you know, you had a lot of fun working on the additions, or maybe it's just something that, as you mentioned, you know, served the church so well. Well, we inherited from, from the original Gregorianist, we inherited the Jeleno Psalms, which, which we certainly continue to promote even to this day. Um, and we inherited the composer Alexander Paliquin, 
and, and they both both of those thrived in the post-Vatican II world. Additionally, in 1971, we added Richard Prue to our roster of GIA composers, and that out to be very good for GIA. Definitely. That we published the first edition of the worship hymnal series, a humble humble little book that showed promise, but mostly became a test run for Worship Two, published in 1990. That book <laughs> sold approximately a million copies and solidly put GIA in the hymnal business. About that time, I became active in the hymn society. And that relationship opened the door to our becoming quite ecumenical. Our first efforts were in publishing a number of Lutheran composers, and that quickly expanded. Our ecumenical posture also led to Tizay and John Bell and the Iona community choosing GIA as their American publisher, and eventually the Royal School of Church Music. In the late 1970s, we also made our first efforts in the non-religious area of music education. And that has led to GIA becoming a major resource for music educators mm -hmm. and one of the major publishers of textbooks for college-level music education. If you're in college and you're learning to be a music teacher, chances are you've got at least one GIA textbook in your, in your duffel bag. Definitely. About 1980, Marty Hogan began to publish with GIA. And other contemporary folk composers soon, soon followed which diversified the GIA catalog to represent the broad spectrum of liturgical music. Mm -hmm. And kind of on that same point, are there any underutilized GIA resources that you'd like to, you know, point out for our customers in hopes that, you know, they could perhaps find them useful in their parishes? Yeah, that's kind of a tough question, but mm -hmm. I think perhaps the answer lies in the area of hymnody. We are presently the largest resource for books on hymnology, and we are the major publisher of today's modern and highly gifted hymn writers. There's a long list of hymn writers, and they come from all Christian denominations who are writing words, texts for the modern church well into the 21st century. So many of these hymns can be sung to melodies, you know, tunes which are well known, familiar melodies, cutting edge words. Thanks to the convenient availability of copyright license, licensing, such as one license, um, right. and services such as our Unbound program, these texts are readily available to congregations, regardless of what hymnal or missalette they have in the pews. Very good. Looking at the full picture of GIA today, kind of you mentioned, you know, uh, you guys taking steps into the music education world, but you know, GIA has become sort of, you know, kind of a one-stop shop for musicians of all backgrounds. Of course, you know, the Sacred Music Division, the Music Education Division, we have Walton Music, Meredith Music, uh, World Library, etc. But um, back in 1967, when you guys, you know, had your hands full with you know, just trying to learn the business and everything, did you, you know, ever imagine that it would, you know, potentially be something like it is today? Well, you know, other than meeting my wife, I think the greatest gift God gave to me was meeting Ed Harris. Uh, it, you know, and on this, I have to give the nod to Ed Harris. In the early days, back in the late 1960s, he said two things that very much guided the course of GIA. Number one, and, and I tend to call this our mission statement, and it's very simple, but right to the point. He said, if we do what's right for the church, it'll be good for business. And, and I've always been guided by that 
sentiment. I think it hits it right on the head. And secondly, at one point in those early days, he casually mentioned something to the effect that he hoped GIA could eventually broaden its efforts to include a broad spectrum of music publishing, not only music for the church. And that is what eventually led to our entry into the music education world. And broaden its efforts, we certainly did. So uh, next question, I'll kind of change tunes a little bit from uh, the GIA questions here for you. But I was interested to ask you, you know, this question with, you know, all your years of pastoral music experience. So obviously on the COVID-19 front, things are starting to look a little bit better now. Some restrictions are getting lifted. Choirs are, you know, picking up again, being able to meet again, sing without restriction and things of that sort. So what kind of advice do you have to music directors out there who are just, you know, now going to be begin uh, resuming normal choir activities and probably going to feel, you know, a little bit out of practice and overwhelmed at the same time while doing it. Now, my recommendation is go slow. Uh, I don't think we can, with dealing with amateur choirs, I don't think we can pick up precisely where we left off two years ago. Uh, that will probably yield to frustration. And you know, your, the choir director is probably not will not immediately get all the singers back and some will be rusty perhaps not having sung in two years so my advice is is begin with the easier repertoire that you can do well in fact i've always preached that when i've do, done workshops for choir directors you know keep it simple keep it sim i kiss keep it simple stupid do only yeah. <laughs> most of the folks in the pews don't really understand or comprehend musical complexity what they do know, however, is that what they are hearing either sounds good or it doesn't. So ease back and, and begin by offering magnificent performances of only the stuff you can do really well. Begin with easy but beautiful. Start small, build up, and it'll be there, and we'll be back, right, before we know it, for sure. Okay. Awesome. Well, Hey, I want to thank you again. This has been great, Bob. We'll wrap up on this last question here, but we just want to thank you again for your time. It's been awesome talking with you. Awesome, you know, learn the ins and outs of the history of GIA for sure. So, as you know, as I mentioned during my ad read and introduction, GIA would certainly not be where it is today without your leadership, you know, all your hard work, all your dedication. Is there anything you'd like to say to our, you know, our listeners, our customers, or anything you'd like to reflect on from your extremely successful career? Well, four words, I am so blessed. There is nothing about my career as a church musician that I would change. If I had to start over, which is why that just celebrated my 80th birthday. Oh, happy I still, belated. I still, thank you. I still direct the choir in my parish church. I direct a Holland, Michigan choir known as the Holland Ecumenical Choir. Singers from about 20 churches, Catholic and Protestant, and when we put out the call, we usually number somewhere between 70, 90 singers for each event. Wow. And I still closely monitor and occasionally put my two cents into the workings of GIA. Besides all of that, I'm a volunteer organist. Get this now. This will be maybe a surprise to some. But I'm a volunteer organist at the Grand Rapids Public Museum, which has a 30-rank Mighty Wurlitzer Theater organ. Yeah. I hadn't played a theater organ until about five years ago, but I am enjoying it. And lastly, I have been known to play an occasional gig as a lounge pianist. So Very nice. 
life is good. Yeah, absolutely. Well, boom, we are done, Bob. That was awesome. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. Tony. Yeah. Well, good luck and yeah. around. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you again, Bob. All right. We hope you enjoyed that interview with Robert Battistini, GIA's retired vice president and senior editor emeritus. Thank you for listening to episode 18 of Encore. Shortly, this podcast will be available in other outlets like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to Encore on your preferred platform when that happens. As always, stay tuned to GIA social media and soundboard.giamusic.com for updates on our next episode. Until next time, take care, everyone. Mm-hmm.